You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am super delighted that you are listening. So I admit that this week's show might be a little on the geeky side, but if getting a peek behind the scenes of what it's like trying to navigate these times as an arts administrator is interesting to you, then this is the show for you. A few weeks ago, I had arts consultant Sarah Leonard on the show. Sarah is based in Columbia, Missouri, but works with non-profit arts clients across the country, advising them on their policies and strategies and the resources they need to thrive. That might involve audience development, because every arts organization wants more people to enjoy and value what they do, or capacity building, or more effective marketing strategies. I think many of us who work in the non-profit arts sector at some point fell into our jobs. Well, I know I did. I was just in the right place at the right time and suddenly I was the executive director of the Columbia Art League. Many of us learn how to run an arts organisation just by turning up day after day and working out how to make it work. In a small non-profit arts organisation, you become the accountant, the programmer, the cleaner, the volunteer manager, the festival organiser, the fundraiser, the grant writer, the marketing manager, and whatever else needs doing. And when a well-meaning person says, hey, you know what you could do? You just wince a little inside and think, when? In what hour of the day that I haven't yet discovered could I fit in this new gem of an idea? Anyway, Sarah Leonard is brilliantly insightful, and when she was on the show a month or so ago, we barely scratched the surface of the things I wanted to ask her about, because not only is she a font of knowledge for the good times, she is now advising her arts clients on how to survive the worst of pandemic times, and how to take this time to work on strategies that will make them more inclusive, more diverse, and more equitable. So even if you are not an arts administrator or involved with a non-profit organisation, if you are at all curious about how arts organisations are trying to deal with 2020 and all that it entails, I hope you'll find Sarah's insights and knowledge as fascinating as I do. We were just going to chat for half an hour, but she just kept on being super interesting. So we just kept on going. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Diana. How are you? I am great and delighted to have you back again. So it is exactly a month since you were on the show. And although we covered a lot of ground looking at why people attend the arts and why they don't, and how art supporters have different wants and needs right now than they did before COVID, 
and how there's another radical conversation going on right now about the need for the arts to be way, way, way more inclusive, both in terms of who is employed, who is shown and who is in the audience. So we covered a lot of ground. But then right after we chatted, you posted about how you had had several aha moments in the subsequent <laughs> days. And so it seemed like we should get together again to chat about your ahas and also about new research, which has just come out about what we are learning about virtual programming. So first of all, thank you so much for coming back to chat, Sarah. You were fabulously eloquent last time, so no pressure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. About what your own research and the national research is telling us. And I, I know that I was not the only person hoping that we would have a chance to continue our conversation. So Let's start with your aha moments. It sounded like you got some additional clarity or insights into the current conversations around diversifying audiences. So tell us more. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me back. It's it's always a joy to talk about these issues and doing more to connect our arts organizations with audiences. That's what I love to do. So I appreciate being here again. You know, I think a lot of my aha moments are related to stories I was seeing emerge, data I was seeing emerge, and my own sort of journey and thought processes as a white woman as I try to challenge and question my own limitations of perspective as an arts administrator and a person. And one of the things I was thinking about is the ways that as as arts organizations, and I'm speaking here really to the white-led, white-dominant arts organizations that are disproportionately present in our cultural sector. One of the things I noticed as we were having conversations about diversifying audiences or what diversity looked like is that we were really recentering whiteness as we had those conversations. So anytime we were talking about diversifying, what we were really doing was saying we are white. And that is the center point. That's where we're starting from, which is true, again, disproportionately in our arts organizations and particularly in senior leadership and on boards. Mm. But it got me thinking about the ways that because our sector looks the way it looks largely, which comes from a lot of reasons, I think, the privileging of European art forms in the U.S., the bodies that have been seen as castable, the voices whose stories have been uh, commissioned and told. Um, it, it means that we can default to this position of, of recentering our whiteness as the neutral position rather than recognizing that true diversity, true inclusivity is going to require a change in what is centered in our organizations. And again, this is my thinking, and it's probably not new news, <laughs> really. Um, just the things that I've sort of been been cogitating on. So what I don't advocate, of course, ever is is tokenizing. But I think of an analogy of coming to the table and the ways in which many of our white dominant or white led organizations have said, well, we reached out. We said, you are welcome here, but what's on offer is what's on offer. You can come to our table and eat what we're serving, Mm. but we need to move beyond that. I think in our cultural organizations to really create inclusive environments that serve the full breadth of our communities to 
question, what are the stories we're telling? What are the the bodies that we have? What's going on on the stage? What's going on in our creative teams backstage? What's going on administratively? How are we creating an environment where it's not, we're not centering white voices dictating what is um, what is served, what's available, and thinking more inclusively. The the challenge, of course, is that we all carry our own limitations of perspective. And so this really requires a big change in what questions we're asking, who we're including, at what part of the decision-making processes and things like that. I hope that made some sense. It's sort of all still formulating in my mind in a way that I hope will become articulate at some point. Um, but I, I think that real, you know, and, and you and I talked about this before, real systems level change is going to be required in order to shift beyond a sort of surface conversation about diversity and getting different people into our spaces, which again, our spaces, what does that really mean? What are we centering when we say that? to creating an inclusive environment that allows us to achieve our missions in a way that serves, again, the breadth of diversity present in our communities. Right. And an organization, again, as we'd said before, you don't become perceived as welcoming in an instant overnight, like, okay, well, we've had this conversation and tomorrow we're going to be everything to everybody and we're going to be perceived differently. It's it's a long race. It's it's not a it's not the hundred meters. I mean, you're really going for a marathon here to to make the changes. So, as we try and and decenter our whiteness or 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 not have whiteness as a center, but we are all or so many are white run organizations. How what is the quickest route to get there? over a period of time, we can say, okay, well, we need to employ different people, more diverse people, we need to look at the programming we're doing. But what steps can we do quickly? That's a great question. And you're right, because if we just throw something out quickly and say, there, we did it, it's not, that's not effective, that's not going to get the job done. I think you're right, there are some definitely some long road issues here. And one of the places I see organizations often turn to first is to say, well, maybe it's our board. We need to diversify our board. And there's good reason for that because that's the policy level. That's where the policies are set in the organizations, nonprofits, clearly. But asking someone to join your board, in a way, should be seen like we would approach a new donor, right? You don't just go to someone who's never had a relationship with your organization, typically, and ask them to join your board. That should be a logical extension of an existing relationship, just like asking someone for a donation should be, or asking them to deepen their relationship with your organization. So I think there are a number of things we can look at in terms of the systems our organizations use. Sometimes there's a first step to be taken that is as simple as where are we getting the word out about what we're doing? I think considering our creative teams, particularly if we're looking at, um, maybe this is most easy in something like theater or dance, where we can bring in different groups of choreographers, directors, et cetera, from one performance to the next. Who's sitting around that decision-making table? One of the things that I have heard Artists of color express to me in various focus groups I've led and things like that when they've been asked if they feel they have a seat at the table is what table, 
all the decisions are made before we get there. So how can we diversify who's involved in our decision-making processes, even if they aren't officially on our staff or board, who's present in your community that you can begin to learn from, ask questions of, build relationships with? Again, not tokenizing and always careful not to put the burden back on communities that have been traditionally disenfranchised or oppressed, which is a challenging line to walk at times to ask for the help that we need to expand our perspectives, but also to do the work to educate ourselves in addition and to hold those things in tension with each other. And I think there was something in the white American theater letter, they said, you know, when you do invite us to the table, you then blame us if things don't go right. Mm. So that is also an issue that it, it really has to be a matter of trust between everybody and and an understanding that we are trying new things as an organization and we have to roll with it and all accept the outcomes. That's right. And I think some of this points to, and, and we're seeing this and feeling this so starkly right now in the midst of COVID as well, change is hard. We, we don't like it as human beings very often and our organizations are often so steeped in what we sort of couch in tradition that to say we're really willing to open up this conversation and acknowledge that things may have to change in a really meaningful way, that can be very scary. Who might that alienate? That's hard and scary. So all of these changes, I think, in some ways must happen now. You know, we're, we're late. <laughs> this should have already been happening. But in other ways, in order to demonstrate the authenticity of our engagement and our authentic desire to create meaningful change is going to take time both to do it and, as you point out, to build the trust, to communicate, to help folks see and believe that this is not a, a stunt, this is not lip service, this is really a desire to improve and be better and serve our communities more effectively. And as with anything, that's a, that is a long road game. So you, you touched on this a little bit, but generally in the arts and, and across business, there's an accepted maxim that it's cheaper to keep your existing patrons and find new ones. So we should all make sure that we're keeping our customers happy first and foremost. But at the same time, now we're talking about wanting to bring in new to us audiences that may want a different kind of programming that speaks to them. And of course, we're short of money because pandemic. So what is the impact of, of that on, on our will to diversify, our, our concern about finances right now? That's a great question. I think we have a real balancing act to achieve right now. And what that's going to look like will vary from one organization to the next and one community to the next. Absolutely. So I don't think there's one distinct answer that's going to work for everyone. That being said, I, I do think that and, and I have given this advice plenty of times myself, right? It is less expensive to keep an audience member than to get a new one. About five times less expensive is what some of the research shows. And so for organizations that are short on time and short on money, let's make sure we're working first to keep the people we already have a relationship with engaged. And I think that there is still truth to that and there is importance to that. That being said, our organizations should have and should act on organizational values. 
And those may be influenced by shifts in the zeitgeist, by needs that we learn about and that become more important to us as organizations and communities over time. And there may be times where we have to say, this is something important to our organization and not everyone in our existing audience is going to go along for that ride. And we have to be okay with that. You know, you mentioned earlier the idea of being all things to all people. And that is something that no arts organization can be. It is, it is not going to happen. Um, It's why we want to have a variety of arts organizations in our communities. I think we aren't going to be everything to everyone, but we could be everything or something to anyone. And and that's where I think we we lose track sometimes. We say, well, these are just our audience. No, our audience could be broader. There are people across any demographic group that share interests and values with our organization. Are we getting the word to them, etc.? So I think that's part of it. We need to be careful, though, then, if we look at our audiences and we notice, and the data bears this out nationally, and if we mine our own organization's data, we often see it as well, that our audiences are disproportionately white as well. They're disproportionately highly formally educated. So if we double down on our existing audience, are we doubling down on that whiteness? Are we doubling down on a certain socioeconomic profile? And as we want to expand, how are we going to need to do that? So we're having to hold intention then this commitment to honoring those who have been with us on this journey, those who've been committed to our organization, and those with whom we've built relationships in the past, with honoring new folks that may be engaging with our organizations for the first time during pandemic, or folks that we desire to bring into our organization's but recognizing that not everyone who's coming in new, if we truly want to diversify, and I don't just mean color of skin with diversify, I mean age, I mean gender identity, I mean the full swath of elements of diversity within our communities. People may want to engage differently from those who have engaged with us in the past. Are we open to and able to find finding those ways, able to to harness some of those opportunities. Of course, what that looks like will vary considerably depending on art form as well as organizational capacity. And that's right. And that makes sense. But thinking about what that can look like for our organization. If someone is engaging with us for the first time through virtual programming, are we expecting that eventually they will turn into a patron that comes on site? Or is there room for us to say, okay, these are some people that are interested in engaging with us this way. How do we embrace that? How do we honor the new ways people want to engage with us and what they bring to our community as well as honoring those who have been with us? So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, we have all these people doing virtual stuff now. Let's just never go back to having live programming and let a bunch of people down unless there's a good reason to do that for your specific organization. The sense right now is that virtual is here to stay. It's not going to always look like it does right now during this period of pandemic, but it's also not going to go back to the way it was. So are there ways that our organizations can embrace those who want to engage in that way and the geographic doors that opens and the other opportunities that may provide to our organizations as well? 
Well, let's talk about virtual programming because you had emailed me to say there's national data about to be released that confirms virtual programming is indeed reaching more audiences of colour. Tell us what that research informs us about. Well, to be honest, I don't have much information yet. And this is still sort of, they haven't released it yet for a reason. They're waiting to see what the second wave is going to bear out to make sure that this this holds. But preliminary data is indicating that on a national level, virtual programming is indeed reaching more audiences of color than arts organizations have historically. And that is big news for us. And it's interesting news for us. I've also spoken with specific organizations that are seeing that bear out for them specifically, community choral organizations that are having far more singers of color join them, far more singers across different ages join them, things along those lines. So what I think we would be mistaken to do is to say, oh, great. So we've broken down those barriers now. And now all of these people that have met us virtually know we're great and we'll be able to convert them to live patrons once we're live again. I have some speculation as to why we may be seeing some farther reaching of the virtual programming into communities of color. I speculate that for some, it may be a sense that I don't have to worry about how I feel in the space. How will I be treated? Will I be included? Is this going to be a place where I feel comfortable and safe and welcomed? I don't have to worry about being stuck in the middle of a row where I can't get out. I don't need to worry about how other patrons are going to view or treat me. We know that rude patrons are the predominant dissatisfier in attending an arts organization, right? Which is bad news for arts administrators because (laughs) it's not something we can control necessarily. If we have other patrons that are rude to other patrons, it's going to have a strong impact on how satisfied someone is with their experience. But, you know, I think that some of those barriers to live performance, do I feel comfortable going to that venue? Is that a place where I have historically felt welcomed or a part of town I'm really even comfortable being in. Some of those factors are taken away when we have virtual programming. So I wonder, and I think this will require more research for us to see, I wonder if that is helping. I also think, again, that we have this new group of folks potentially, or at least a broader reaching opportunity to reach folks that haven't previously engaged with our organizations through virtual. Some of them may decide we are great. I think we need to have kind of a twofold approach here. Can we take some of these virtual audiences and pull them along and bring them back into our spaces? I suspect we can. We need to use this opportunity, though, to really learn who's engaging with us virtually why they're engaging with us virtually, what they like about engaging with us virtually. Some of it may be, you know, the fact that I can see my college roommate's theater production in San Francisco, even though I live in Missouri. Um, And I want to continue to be able to do that. But there may be other reasons as well that someone might engage virtually, even with a local organization. Uh, So some may be convertible, but I also think, again, we're really going to need to open those open our own minds to consider 
Why is it that folks are engaging with us this way? What do they want out of it? And is that something we need to continue to provide in order to fulfill our missions in a certain part of this community? That's not going to be feasible for every organization, but I think for some, it may be a way forward. I mean, that brings us to a point about just staffing and costs. So given that most arts organizations are running on a shoestring budget, even in the best of times and shoestring staffing levels, if virtual programming is here to stay, and that brings with it a significant increase in workload without really an obvious path to an increase in income. How do you see this new virtual world being assimilated by smaller organizations? It's a great question, and and I wish I had more concrete answers because smaller organizations are the ones I care so deeply about. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like yet. I know that there are people out there who are advising smaller organizations to stop giving away virtual programming for free now, but for some and in some communities, that's more feasible than others. People seem to be more driven to pay for live streamed experience than pre-recorded, things like that. It's going to be interesting to see because I'm curious to observe how how much of it is related to discomfort coming back into a space for a certain part of our audiences, right? So they, those folks might be perfectly happy to see a live stream video of something going on live in the performance space. That would require an investment in technology and staff with the expertise to do that, but that can be done to varying degrees of sophistication. I think... You know, when we imagine virtual programming, I think our inclination is to imagine the National Theater Live or kind of these just really big, robust, technologically advanced things, but not everything has to shoot the moon like that. Some of the ways that we do virtual programming may just be providing social spaces to draw together that are virtual. That doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Is there something that can go? Is there something that can be replaced with a virtual offering? One of the opportunities that arts organizations have right now, from my perspective, as they start to put programming back together, is to really consider what programs we're feeding our audience, what programs we're feeding our organization, what was taking a lot of time and energy that we don't actually want to put back. We have an opportunity for some degree of reset. And I think can look for potentially time or resources there. That being said, a lot of organizations are starting to reimagine some of their staffing and resource allocation so that they have freed up dollars to spend on videography, video editing, things along those lines. But virtual programming doesn't have to mean all your performances are now online and live. It can mean other ways of engaging as well. Not everything has to shoot the moon. So I encourage organizations to think about small ways to continue to engage people. This is also where I think we need to do some data collection at the organizational level. So considering asking people who are engaging with you virtually, particularly if you happen to have a way to parse people that are engaging with you virtually for the first time, but even if you don't, what it is that they're getting out of it so that as we go back to some sort of, or I shouldn't say go back, as we go forward into some sort of new normalcy, being able to identify what it is that people valued about engaging with us virtually and then think, okay, this is what they were getting out of it. 
how can we continue to supply that value, whether or not it's through the same programming? So it's kind of like, um, you know, when we talk about planning for an organization, we set these goals, we have these objectives, and then there are any number of different tactical ways we could reach them. So we need to know what impact we're trying to have and what we're trying to accomplish for those audience members. And then we can find tactics that scale from the very small to the very sophisticated that will fit our organization and be able to do that for our audiences. I also think that some organizations aren't going to continue virtual and that's okay. It's not going to be for everybody. It's not going to be within the scope for all organizations. And I think it's better for us to be honest about our capacities and our missions and what the best way is forward for for any given organization to fulfill that mission in a capacity viable way. Because if we expend beyond that, then we're, we're stuck, right? We're not going to be able to be thriving and vibrant. I think research and data collection is really difficult for a lot of smaller organizations. You know, A, I don't know what to ask, and I don't know what I'm reading from the data that I collect back. And and I don't know how many people are going to respond. If I send out a survey to my email list and 10 people respond, is that representative of, of what is really out there, of the, of the real facts? And how do I reach people that I'm not already talking to through my existing mailing list? I want to find out what does the person on the street, what do they think about my organization and the programs I'm offering? And I don't know how to reach them. And the cost is kind of prohibitive of working with a large research data company. What do, again, what do small organizations do to really collect data that is meaningful? Great question. So surveys are certainly an option, but you're right. We need to be very careful to really identify strongly in advance what what information we really wish we had, write questions that will then yield that data, which is easier said than done, mm. and then understand what we're looking at when it comes back. If you choose to do a survey, what I really recommend is that you go through that step, first step of really identifying what information you wish you had in order to make better decisions for your organization. Draft your questions and then try them out on random people in your life, (laughs) not people with intimate knowledge of your organization or what you're trying to accomplish. In survey design, we call this cognitive testing. So Test out those questions and see if the answers you're getting are to the question you thought you were asking. Also consider the order in which you're asking those questions. Because if you say, you know, we're sending this to people who came to one event last year, what could have been better about that event? What let you down or disappointed you? Then you've got people thinking about all the things they don't like. And so that's going to be in their mind going into the next question. Is that what you want? Is that going to yield the best and most open results? So that is one avenue for folks that are already in your database, so to speak. Um, One group that I think is often overlooked that we may have access to are lapsed people. So people who have engaged with your organization in the past but didn't renew their membership, haven't purchased a ticket in the last year or two, etc. So if there's a way in your database, and for some small organizations there's not, but if there is a way to separate out that group of people those are folks that you can get some really interesting information from sometimes about why they stopped. Sometimes it's, oh, I forgot to renew and nobody ever called me, which is not something any arts organization likes to hear, but does happen. Sometimes they move away, but sometimes it's life stage. Sometimes it's something more specific that's gone on in the life of the organization or the community that is good to know about. 
In terms of people you don't know, that's always the biggest trick, right? And when we talk about expanding or diversifying our audiences, what we're really saying is figure out what a bunch of people that you've never met want to be told, but and you have nothing to go on, you know? It's sort of this um, impossible-sounding task. So a couple of places that I like to start. One is with the board. Hopefully, your organization has a board that is somewhat representative of the community. Hopefully, those board members are giving you access to social groups and networks and parts of the community that the organization itself may not yet fully permeate. If you can utilize some of those connections to give you access to groups of people that may have engaged in a limited way with your organization or not at all... Normally, I would say invite them over for some bagels and coffee and have a focus group. In this situation, we have to do that virtually, which is not quite as fun. But I have facilitated my fair share of virtual focus groups during this period. I think it can be done. And right now, I think we live very much in the world of, well, this isn't this isn't what we considered our best practice before, but we're having to create new practices now. So let's do it. So if we can use that to give ourselves access into different parts of the community, thinking about, do you want to be hearing from people in positions of, of power locally, um, whether that's governmental power in the educational system, religious leaders, are those folks you want to be hearing from? Do you want to just get a group of 20 and 30 somethings together who've never darkened the door of your organization and find out what the heck they think it's really all about. What's going through their mind when they walk past your venue, if you have one, things like that. So I think that can be a good way to do it. Utilizing your staff, if you have them, or again, board, to informally question their friends, whether that's with a set set of questions that you provide to them or just sort of say, okay, we're each going to take responsibility to talk to five people. Here are the things to document about those person. Maybe we want to know age. Maybe we want to know gender identity, whether there are children in their home or whether they're empty nesters, etc. What do we want to know about that part of the picture? But, but don't stop there. Then think about, again, what information is it that you want to have in order to make better decisions for your organization? And how can you get there? Learning about impressions is really valuable asking questions about what people value about the organization or what they think an organization like yours should be doing for the community can give a lot of helpful information that can kind of either confirm your suspicions or help you throw them up in the air and, and recast them a bit if that's what's necessary. I think even thinking about something like an organization like KOPN, you know, we we have airwaves, we are able to reach a lot of people. But if we think about, well, who are we not reaching? There's no point putting an appeal out via our own organization, which is a radio station, which has access to untold number of people because the people that aren't listening aren't listening. <laughs> so right. it becomes a challenge, you know, right from the get go. Like, where are these new people? How do I get access to 20 to 30 random 20 year olds? Right. And like we talked about a little bit like last time, you don't, it, there's no point talking to people who say, I never listen to radio because they're never going to listen to radio. So then I want to say, well, I want 20 to 30 random 20-year-olds who do listen to radio. So that drops the population a little bit. And and how do you do that if you're a small organization? It, it's, it's tricky. It is. The other thing I recommend, and then, you know, we run quickly into the capacity issue again, but getting 
as involved as possible in other community organizations where you believe there are people who share interests and values with your organization. So if there's, you know, if you've noticed overlap between people who engage with KOPN and people who engage with a few other community organizations, I don't know, the Kiwanis Club, I'm just making that up, right? Then you make sure that your organization has a presence there so that you're learning about those folks, building a relationship with those folks so that you can access people that aren't KOPN people, but who you have reason to believe may be interested in becoming KOPN people. It's not going to be a perfect process, but the only way to get to know new people is to get to know new people. And the the closer we can have a personal connection, right? So that board member invitation or, oh, I met you at that Chamber of Commerce breakfast or whatever it might be, we can say, hey, Diana, could you get a couple of your friends together and come meet me for virtual coffee and talk about X? We're just trying to get some information about community perceptions of the organization and things like that. And then I've seen some organizations back in live performance times go to people and say, hey, if we give you a couple tickets, will you come to this event and just tell us exactly what you think? And people like to be you know, heard. They like to have their opinions valued. So that's going to be a small scale information gathering thing. It's not easy and it does take time and effort. And I think as we to go back to sort of where we started, as we think about what it means to create more inclusive organizations, this this is going to be something that requires time and effort. So we may need to be looking at our organizations and saying, what are we going to say no to if this is going to become a priority for us in order to create a realistic balance? Because nonprofit administrators cannot just keep piling on on the whole. There's just not the time and energy to do it and do it well and do it in a way that doesn't lead to burnout. Sarah, let's have a wee musical interlude before we carry on. I am a huge fan of the guitarist Yasmin Williams and her song Restless Heart opens and closes the show each week. Yasmin's new album Urban Driftwood is due out in the next couple of months and this is a live version of a track from her album and this track is called Juvenescence.
was a track called Juvenescence by Yasmin Williams from her soon-to-be-released album Urban Driftwood. If you are just tuning in, my guest today is arts consultant Sarah Leonard, and we are talking about some of the challenges facing art organisations at this time. So talking about data, I, I know you're tracking a ton of data and research that is continuously being updated, particularly right now. And one of them is really an interesting communique called Culture and Community in a Time of Crisis by a company called La Placa Cohen, which comprises data from 124,000 respondents. That's pretty huge. Most of which are collated from 653 cultural organizations, mostly museums and performing arts venues. And, you know, it isn't only arts things, it's, you know, zoos and and gardens as well. So it's a little bit broad. What are you seeing in that La Placa Cohen data that is really jumping out for you? Yeah, there are a number of things. I think this is an exciting set of data. And also exciting is that this is just wave one, and we're going to have a wave two before too much longer here. One thing I do want to note before I get into some of the findings is that this survey that these findings are coming from closed in May. And a lot of life has happened between (laughs) May and now. But I was speaking with a colleague of mine who's one of the partners at La Placa Cohen recently, and he said that what they're actually finding, and and this is borne out as I've lived with this data in praxis a little bit as well, is that there's sort of a dip when things shut down and, and things look different. And now that we're seeing spikes occurring in so many regions and different regions, this is all coming back and bearing out again. So it's even though the date was a fair bit ago, and I'm sure some of the numbers here and there have changed, this is still very much holding true. So a few things that are really jumping out to me in this data. One is some things aren't surprising. People are worried or afraid. People are bored and people are feeling disconnected from others. And I think many of us can relate to that in our own lives or the lives of people we know and love. And I think what's exciting and interesting is that people are looking to the cultural organizations in their lives to fill those voids. What I find so fascinating about this, though, right, one of the things we see, one of the questions they asked is, when cultural activities are shut down, what do you miss the most? And people said, spending quality time with family or friends, having fun, relaxing and feeling less stressed, right? Those are exactly the same things that in pre-COVID times, people told us were their motivations for attending the arts, right? It all lines up. What I think is happening from my own observation is maybe not that those things are changing, but they're just becoming clearer to people that that's what they want and need. And I think I may have mentioned this last time we spoke, but the options to fill those voids are limited right now. So I think if we can wrap our heads around it, we have an opportunity as cultural organizations to fill these voids where people are saying, we want to feel connected, we want to have fun and feel relaxed and learn something new, and we want it from you, right? Okay, people are telling us what they want from us. That's big. That's exciting. That's helpful. Um, But there are other avenues to have those needs filled. Going to the bar with friends, going out and doing X, Y, or Z aren't options. So if we're able to find some ways to help fill those voids during this time, we may have an opportunity to reach into broader parts of our community or to just sort of cement a position as an integral part of folks' lives in that way. 
So I think that's exciting. In particular, this is the source where I have the information about folks finding a bit more value in live streamed performances than pre-recorded. Activities for kids is still big. It'll be interesting to see you know, in May, everyone had the summer ahead of them. It'll be interesting to see moving into a very uncertain school year, whether that continues to hold true or not. Um, some other things that I'm looking at in their data that I find particularly interesting, I know a lot of arts organizations are really concerned about some of the practical changes regarding masks, social distancing, cleaning protocols. You know, what are we going to need to do to make people feel safe? And one of the things that has been true, but is borne out in this data, is that some of those things that will make people feel safe are out of our control. Arts organizations cannot impact the availability of testing. They cannot impact how soon we get a vaccine. They can require masks from visitors, things along those lines. And, and masks are, not surprisingly, one of the big things that people say they're going to want to see in order to feel comfortable returning. But we do have some really challenging things to think through about enforcement of those policies. You know, if, if we are having people back in our theaters and concert halls and the lights go down and people take their masks off, what are we going to do about that? Are we even going to notice? So again, I think, you know, one of the big things in terms of what people are looking for from us is that it hasn't changed dramatically. They're looking for those opportunities to connect. They're looking for opportunities to have fun and relax. So how can we, how can we provide those and how can we message what we're offering in a way that communicates that? Because I think as arts organizations, we know we fill those voids for people. We know we create human connection. We know we provide shared emotional experiences and food for the soul and an escape from the daily grind into some sort of world, depending on the, the different types of art that we're providing. But I'm not sure we're doing quite as good a job communicating that. And one of the interesting components of this data is that while about 96% of people that responded to the survey said that they wanted arts and cultural organizations to help their communities and help meet these needs during COVID, only about one in three saw it happening. So how can we communicate our service, our, the ways that we are feeding people's souls in a way that's meaningful? You know, when we look at what people are asking for from us and, in, and also the changes they want to see, we're not seeing, you know, what I really want is for you to bring me more high-profile soprano soloists during this pandemic. What I really want is a you know a better violinist during this pandemic. They're they're asking us to meet more basic needs. So we need to make sure that in our messaging we're finding ways to speak to those very human desires that they're asking us to speak to. One piece of data that I thought was a little disheartening was the response to a two-part question about whether the arts and culture are essential. So 61% of people said they recognize that their local arts and culture organizations are struggling financially. So two thirds recognize, okay, these organizations that I want to help me are really struggling right now. But 85% of people either didn't think that they were a financial priority or were kind of neutral on it. So 
people thought, yeah, I, I, I don't think they're a financial priority compared to other nonprofits during this crisis. And that's really hard to read if you're struggling to keep your arts organization afloat, that people want your services, they recognize you're struggling, oh, well, they don't really want to pay for it. How do you respond to that? That Yes, that is so hard. I, what we're seeing overall is that um, arts and culture, in terms of people's giving trends, um, and these are the respondents to the survey, so not this is not globally, um, they've held steady at number four, but they're now tied with number four with environment and animals. And the one thing that jumped up was health. No big shock, right? During a pandemic, health is going to jump up. Human services and religious organizations are still taking the lead. Again, not a big surprise. And I think most of us would have a really hard time telling someone right now not to donate to the food bank, you know, and people's dollars are limited. Some people's dollars are severely limited. I think many who have not taken a personal financial hit are feeling generous, are feeling like they want to contribute because they recognize that they are in a very lucky and privileged position at the moment. But yeah, for an arts and cultural organization to know that, um, okay, so you know we're struggling and you don't care? Is that what you're saying? I don't think it's that people don't care. I think a couple things are happening. As arts organizations, we do need to make sure that we're asking. There's, I think, a hesitation or a reticence, a concern that will come off as out of touch or or cold or something if we ask for funding. But if we don't, we're communicating that we're okay hmm. tacitly. So I think it is okay, and you and I have talked about this before, I think it is okay and indeed necessary to ask for funding, but to do so in a way that's very tuned into the larger context of this moment. The more that we can contextualize those asks in having provided people with the experience and resources that are feeding their souls, their minds, giving them those opportunities that they're telling us they so desperately need during this pandemic, if we have done that, and if we can tell that story, sometimes indirectly is the best way. You don't always want to say, we made you feel X, you know, because people don't like being told how they feel generally. But the more we can create and then recreate that experience for people of, of the connections and emotional relief and things like that that they're looking for, and then follow that up with the ask rooted in that, it makes more sense. This is not the moment for our arts organizations to communicate it's all about us right? So this isn't the moment to say, we're so great. We br brought you this great program and give us money so that we can keep doing that. All of that is true. But I think this is a moment to think very generously about our communities, about the roles that we play in the lives of our communities, and to really look at what people are telling us they want us to be in their lives. Because we already are. We already are. The arts we know provide these things. So how do we work to tell that story better in a way that then opens the door to ask? Also, are, and you and I spoke about this last time, are there ways to partner with organ, human service organizations, things like that, that show sort of a generosity of spirit and community? I'm not saying this is going to be the most robust fundraising period for the arts. I think for pretty obvious reasons it may not be. 
but this is a challenge. So if we're, if people are feeling that they should support other kinds of organizations before arts and culture, how do we help illustrate both through our actions and our communications, how we are meeting those needs in a way that will help hopefully drive us up that list, at least in the minds of, of some. And I think that's what we do. The other thing that some folks are having luck with is they have identified that one of their values is really their people, their their audience members, their artists, their community members who sing or play instruments with them, whatever it might be for their organization. And so they're divvying up among staff and board members the names and phone numbers of those folks, and they're just checking in with people one-on-one. And those who have the means are often responding to that very positively financially, even though it's not a direct ask. So that won't bear out for everybody in every organization, but is one other way. It is something that is sobering for us to be sure. And I think a reminder then of how much we need to kind of be living within challenging means at this moment to not get ourselves into financial trouble that then we're going to carry with us into an uncertain future. I feel like a lot of the messaging that I hear or see or read is is a, a little bit of a kind of a desperation of if you want us to be here after this is over, we really need your support. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about that because on one level, I think, oh my God, yeah, I want these organizations to still be here. But on another level, I think, I haven't got enough money to support everybody. And so I feel a little bit guilty and I'm not sure whether guilting people works. (laughs) Yeah, it's not my preferred move. I think generally speaking, when we communicate desperation, you know, it's like, well, do I want to give my money to the sinking ship or do I want to give my money to the one that's still afloat? You know, um, especially if the amount of money I'm giving, and this is true for most of us, the amount of money I'm giving isn't going to right anybody's ship. You know, it's going to have to be a drop in the bucket. So my preference, rather than communicating sort of that desperation again, would be to talk more relationally, considering, you know, we miss you so much. We can't wait until we're together again. Here's the impact on your life, really. And again, we don't say this straight out, right? We don't say like, we impact your lives in the following three ways. We illustrate it through stories, through images that bring back memories of prior events. People are feeling quite nostalgic right now. So how do we use that to our to our collective advantage as cultural organizations? And to communicate that, yes, we need your help in order to keep having this impact, that these are challenging times. Nobody's going to argue with that or see that as a cry for of desperation, I don't think. But yeah, I'm with you. I think when we come across as saying like, well, we're not going to make it if you don't help us or sort of this this guilt or shame thing. It's so easy to be there right now as as arts administrators and leaders of arts organizations. We're we're in survival mode. But I think in our communications, we have to give ourselves some mental and physical space to be able to not speak from that place of desperation quite so explicitly, even in, when we are feeling it. There are ways to communicate the need for help, I think, without getting to to that point of guilt. Maybe it's because I used to run an arts organization. I kind of like read between the lines and I, I just see lots of captains on ships kind of waving their arms. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Sarah, it has been a delightful hour 
with you. I always enjoy chatting with you and you give me new things to think about every time we speak. And and I know you have such incredibly valuable information for all not only arts administrators, but I think anybody that is an administrator of a not-for-profit, these are challenging times. And your insights and guidance, I know, are valued by a lot because you have clients who adore you. Thank you. Um, So thank you for sharing some of your expertise on the radio. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I hope this has been helpful for folks. I'm sure it has. And let's, uh, let's keep in touch. Okay, thank you. that is it for another week. I am hugely grateful to Sarah for sharing her insights and professional knowledge with us. Today's show was a real gift from her to anyone working in the arts. Thank you, Sarah. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to Sarah and also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music on Spotify and also on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peaks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.